Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We naturally want Jesus to be invulnerable and the thought of him feeling anxiety or, as Matthew writes, extreme grief about his predicament presents an uncomfortable picture of God's Messiah. We prefer a version of Jesus that manifests perfection and stoic implacability because we believe in this possibility for ourselves. But that's not what Matthew is saying. On the contrary, in the entire situation, the only reliable, invulnerable, perfect thing is the commandment of God the Father upon which even Jesus depends. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 to 39. You're listening to the Bible. As literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 399 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been nagging and harping and insisting that. You can't volunteer for anything if you're a slave. That there is no choice in the matter if you're a slave. This has been a constant theme this year. Roman culture is not incidental to the New Testament. It is part and parcel with the content of the New Testament. It is assumed as part of the content. And until we understand that Jesus in the garden is a demoted Caesar kneeling before his father, who now is the true emperor, until we understand that and realize that God the Father has made out of the Son of God, that God has made out of this station a slave, we can't understand this conversation we're about to hear, Richard. This is not a theological discussion about free will and all of this nonsense. The only option he has is to ask his dad for a pass. If his dad does not give him a pass, he has no choice. So all of you out there talking about democracy and losing your rights and how important it is to have a flag in church next to your cross. Not only are you rejecting the teaching of St. Paul, you are dishonoring and turning your back on Jesus in the garden. Just forget all of your civic rights. They don't matter. Now, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't feel ashamed about George Floyd. You should. You should be ready to give your life for George Floyd. 
but you can't complain about your rights because you as an individual pertain to the master and the master is the head of the body and you are responsible to care for the body politic of the neighborhood around you. But you, as part of the religious community, are to be broken for the sake of that body. And now Jesus is going to be, as the head of that body, both the religious community of the 12 tribes that were gathered around him, and as the demoted head of the body politic of the republic under the authority of his father, the true emperor, he is going to personally be broken for the sake of everybody against his will, because he is now a slave. So why are you talking about your rights? What are you talking about? Why are you waving a flag? Put the flag away. When you raise your flag next to your cross, you are not celebrating the legacy of Jesus Christ. You are celebrating the legacy of the Caesars. Have you not figured out that they were forced to put Constantine's name in the Treparian. Haven't you figured this out? A friend of mine in college, whom you and I both know, Father, said one time, I don't believe in human rights. He said, human rights are inherently selfish because a human right is something that I say you must do to me or for me. They're inherently selfish. They control others for my sake. They put limits on what you can do to me. And so we always have to be careful with this language of human rights, of rights, of individual rights, and these sorts of things. The second thing that I find, I don't know, personally very strange, I was talking to my wife about this, and I said, can you explain to me this thing that people keep talking about with their personal encounters with Jesus and the love of Christ and all these kinds of things they talk in this very emotional way? Because for me, it's not this emotional thing. Maybe I just have a tin ear for the emotions of this. Because for me, this is about obedience. So she and I had a long talk about, you know, what do people mean when they talk about this love of Jesus or the encounter with Christ or whatever? When I see Jesus encountering his father in the garden, Jesus does have an emotional moment as he prays, but it's sadness and it's heaviness. It's not joy and freedom. We never have Jesus feeling joy and freedom when he's talking to God, which is something that human beings like to enjoy. But Jesus seems to not really talk about that kind of language. So what's going on there? I think what you're saying, Father, is really important about free will. I mean, if there is such a thing as free will in Scripture, it's actually a problem. The problem is free will. It's free will that allows human beings to be disobedient. So the struggle of the human being in anything, in scripture, in addiction, in fidelity to their spouse, and all this, is to give up one's will in order to follow someone else's. You know, you and I, we always make this joke that there's all kinds of stuff to help people be a true leader and find their calling as a leader and to, you know, learn leadership and all this sorts of thing. But, you know, really what we need is more followership and more followers because that's a lot harder, especially in the United States. People will say they're a follower behind the flag, but even that makes some people queasy. They want to fight for the flag. They want to stand in front of the flag and defend the flag, but no one wants to follow the flag 
and do what the flag tells them to do. Now, the flag, of course, has no teaching. The flag can be whatever you want it to be. Here we have a scripture. They want to follow Jesus insofar as Jesus makes them feel good and happy and joyful and blah, blah, blah. But when Jesus is following his father, he feels sad and heavy. He has to give up his will in order to follow the will of his father, which he's willing to do. And this is what sets Jesus apart. He does not follow his own will. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Everyone paints Jesus like he is a superhero. No one ever mentions in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was disobedient to his parents. It's not okay that he dumped Mary and Joseph. No one ever talks about it. But anyone who has kids knows that if your kid did something and then said, I was going about the business of my Heavenly Father, you'd smack them upside the head because that's idiotic. Everybody knows that if you give your son an order and he's grieved and distressed, you get frustrated, especially if the stakes are this high. So the super Jesus that everyone keeps defending that should have a superhero outfit and be one of the Avengers the hero of the Byzantine Empire to defend Constantine? That's not the Jesus Matthew is preaching. The Jesus Matthew is proclaiming is a demoted king who is conquered by his father. He is weakened. He is about to be shamed and publicly portrayed as crucified. And he doesn't want to be. And he is grieved. And he is distressed, meaning that he is, like any other human being, worried and afraid. You are troubled and you are sad when you are afraid of losing something and you're having anxiety over an outcome. The guy is obviously struggling with obedience to his father. For someone who delights in the will of the Lord, when the Lord says, go and get killed, then... The one who delights in the will of the Lord says, hallelujah, and they go on and do it. So often we want Jesus not to have struggled with doing the will of his Father. But here we see, I mean, the fact that he is sad, he's not sad about Peter, he's sad about his own fate. This is the natural biological response to one's looming death when we read about The one who wants to follow Jesus has to pick up his cross to follow him. This is the the scene that plays out when Jesus is about to take up his own cross. So the human being who supposedly joyfully picks up his own cross, I start to get suspicious about because, you know, Jesus himself didn't find it an easy task to pick up his cross. He did it. He was successful. But really the success in doing the deed was what was important in spite of his will. So again, like we were saying, Father, the will, the human will, the so-called free will, are not the good points. In fact, they're the stumbling block, the scandal in these that would pull one off the path of the cross. Theologians get very excited about the concept of free will. It's a big deal 
in the West. They love to talk about choice and freedom. And then, just like Jews in late antiquity, and Paul had to correct for this in his letters, this misunderstanding, this prosperity gospel mentality that somehow people who follow the Torah win God's favor and get a prize at the end called Roman citizenship. There were people who thought that because they were good Jews, that the result was Roman citizenship or favor with the Roman Empire. That's why Paul gave up his citizenship and kept proclaiming himself a slave. We have a love affair with our own freedom when our reference is the world, when our reference is Caesar, when our reference is the flesh, and in 2021, when our reference is the individual. That is why we love talking about the theology of free will. It has nothing to do with Scripture. In the Torah, you can either submit to God and live, or rebel against God and die. And the funny thing about the situation Jesus is in on the Mount of Olives, which sounds like the Mount of Mercy, that at the moment doesn't seem so merciful, Rich. If he submits to God, he's going to die. If he rebels against God, he will, in principle, in the near term, win the very freedom and the very life that everybody on Facebook keeps bragging about when they're defending the temple of their body against the vaccine. So what are you talking about when you're talking about Jesus having a choice and having free will? There is no choice. Either you reject God or you submit. It's reject or submit, not choose. I'd like a cheeseburger instead of a fish sandwich. I'd like, as George Carlin used to make fun of us, I'd like paper instead of plastic. That's your free will. It's a big joke. So let's take a moment and really understand the problem here. It's a problem that Jesus has a problem. It's not okay that he's distressed. And don't theologize it and explain how he's grieving deeply in his soul for the sin of the world. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that here. I'm sure you can find it in your patristic literature, but it doesn't say it here. What I see here is the guy has to do something he doesn't want to do, and he's having an anxiety attack. I like the way that you contextualize choice because, yeah, the choice isn't A or B. It's A or not A. The ability that Adam received in the garden was the ability to rebel. It wasn't free will. It was the ability to disobey. It was the ability to move off the path. That's what he was given. But heck, I mean, every Roman soldier had the right to walk off the path. Of course, if you walked off the path as a Roman soldier, you were a deserter and you could be killed for it. But you had that choice. Just because someone is threatening your life doesn't mean you don't have a choice. You can choose to receive the punishment or not. When Jesus says the one who seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and the one who loses his life will save it. This is exactly what he's talking about. I really appreciate how he brought Peter and the sons of Zebedee 
into this final lesson because even Jesus, in his struggle to do the right thing, was still teaching. That's the interesting thing here, Father. He was struggling with doing the will, that is the will of his Father, and following the path, that is the path of Torah. But even in his struggle, he knew that Peter and the sons of Zebedee had to see it because Jesus was going to use his situation not to model himself, not to model himself, but to judge Peter and the brothers in order to make the point of his father, not his own point, the point of his father. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. It's not a good picture for Jesus. Peter is the one who specifically said, I won't deny you, and I will die with you. I won't be scandalized. Even if everyone else is scandalized, I will not be scandalized. And this is what he said in chapter 26. Just back in Matthew 24, Jesus explained how the good servant, the good slave, is ready for his master at any time. Even if the master comes back in the middle of the night, the good servant keeps watch. Peter says, I will not deny you, even if everyone else denies you. I will die with you if it takes. I will die with you if I must, Jesus. And Jesus said, okay, let's see. Stay awake. Stay awake like the good slave waiting for his master, waiting for his Lord. Can you wait just a few hours for your Lord? Let's not get on to talking about denial and death quite yet. Let's just see. Can you pay attention? Can you, Grigoreo? This is where the name Gregory comes from. Alert, alert. <laughs> I still love that episode, Rich. <laughs> so when they have to be alert, the servant who is waiting for their master must remain alert. Peter, can you just do that? Can you just hold on to the teaching that I taught two chapters ago before we get on to how you're not going to be scandalized and how you're going to be ready to die? Let's see how this goes. If we're talking about Jesus feeling this grief, this regret, even this loneliness, although it doesn't say that he's lonely, he's asking them, stay with me, keep watch with me. This is what happens when you strike the shepherd. This is what anyone in a position of teaching goes through, because you keep trying to get the point across to your students, whether you're a priest or a middle school teacher or a professor or a parent, anyone who has teaching responsibility. And if you haven't figured out that real authority pertains to teaching, if you haven't figured that out, that no one's a leader, that what we're really responsible to do is to teach and to serve. If you haven't figured that out, then you don't understand anything. I always explain this, you know this, Richard, I always explain this to folks at St. Elizabeth. If you're speaking, you have to evaluate whether or not you're teaching. And if you're not teaching, then you should stop speaking. Unless you're just with a friend and you just wanna talk, and we understand that you're wasting time just to blow some hot air because we're human beings and we need some emotional sustenance sometimes. But when you're with a group of people and you open your mouth to speak, you better be darn sure that you're saying something useful. Jesus has been doing that work throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. 
And now, as you pointed out rightly, it's the test. And the fact that he knows Peter's going to betray him, the fact that they're going to fail this test now, and it's pretty obvious to everyone that that's the case, the fact that Jesus doesn't want to do what his dad is asking him to do, the fact that he's having an anxiety attack over it, their disobedience, their failure, their inadequacy, their obstinance, their stubbornness, and their inability to grasp what he's teaching is a kind of piling on to whatever it is Jesus is going through right now. And it's important for everyone hearing this story not to theologize away the doubt, the anxiety, the fear, the resistance that Jesus is expressing here in the story. Don't do it. Do not respond by saying, that's incorrect, Father Mark. Jesus is perfect. Don't do it. Do not do it. Do not make out of the scriptural Jesus your Hellenistic deity. Don't do it. Because then you'll never hear what's going on. Jesus is the conquered, crucified. He is conquered. You know how we say Jesus Christ conqueror? It's Jesus Christ who is conquered by his Father. That is what's happening here. He is the one who is defeated. And he is coming to terms with that. He is accepting that. He is submitting to that right now. And he doesn't want to. Who would? We want to make him perfect because we want to make him in our image. Because we want to believe that we are perfect or we can become perfect because we are all deep down inside Hellenists. That is a fact. That's why you all love the Avengers movies. That's why you all love Superman. And that's why you all believe in Star Trek's version of the future. Do not kid yourself. Jesus is not a stoic philosopher. Jesus feels his emotions, and he expresses his emotions. He even tells his students his emotions. He doesn't justify them, though. We know that what he's going through is because he's rebelling against the will of his father. But what I really appreciate from what you're explaining here, Father, is that Jesus is going through what he's going through because he's doing what he's doing. It's not right, it's not okay, but it's the fact. That's what's happening. And this is what Jesus is confronting. He does not want to do the right thing here. Now, you and I, Father, we always talk about intentions and what we want and what we hope for. Na, na, na. And now we're going to see what Jesus actually does in spite of his biological imperative to keep himself alive. Thank God that God doesn't give a hoot about intentions, despite what Pseudo Chrysostom said in his homily on Pascha. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So in the end, he moved a little beyond them. He did not rely on his peeps. He did not hold hands with his study group. He did not rely on anybody else. 
he trusted his father. He went a little further. He didn't worry whether his students were listening to him. He didn't care if anybody was on his side. He just submitted to his father. He fell down on his face and he asked his dad, if there's a way for me to get out of this, I'd like to let this cup pass. But in the end, if this is what you want me to do, I have to do it because it's up to you. It's not up to me. So in the end, whatever he's feeling, whatever his struggles are, doesn't matter. His feelings don't matter. His inner struggle doesn't matter. In the end, he submits and gives in to what his father decides. The choice is not in the hands of Jesus. The choice is in the hands of the father. Jesus can either reject the father's decision or submit to it. If he rejects it, it's like rejecting the commandment in Deuteronomy. Then he dies in the wilderness. If he submits, he finds life. But what that life looks like when you're facing execution is tricky business. We often like to quote, thy will be done. But we don't really like to quote, not as I will. How come we don't ever quote that one, Father? Not as I will. Jesus himself says, don't do this according to what I want, but according to you. Because we secretly hope that what you want is what I want. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jesus is, a, you know, if you, can, if you can work something out, God, <laughs> Father, this is the same point. With Jesus, he echoes the words that are the true teaching for us, which is not as I will. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.